Rami Zaid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is Dave Justice, Chief Revenue Officer at PagerDuty based in San Francisco. PagerDuty is an incident management platform that provides reliable notifications and other functionality to help teams detect and fix infrastructure problems quickly. From Cisco Systems, where Dave started his career, to Salesforce and now PagerDuty, Dave's career has been remarkable. But just as remarkable is Dave's perspective on life, his family, and yes, his uncanny knowledge of rock and roll history from 1970 to the late 1990s which we had some fun with on this show. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dave Justice. This episode is brought to you by Cleanse On The Go. As potential sponsors approached me to advertise on my podcast this past year, I made a conscious decision to only bring on sponsors I absolutely believe in, and Cleanse On The Go is just that. A cleanse for me had nothing to do with weight loss, although it does that as well if that's what you're looking for, but more of a mental reset. I love the two-day cleanse option they have, but you have the choice of either a one, two, or three-day option to cater to your needs and wants. The beauty of Cleanse on the Go is its mobility. As most of my loyal listeners know, I absolutely promote a healthy eating and exercise lifestyle, but I'm a single dad, two kids, working 24-7, so to say I'm a bit busy is a ludicrous understatement. Cleanse on the go is super easy to use. They're just small packets you mix with water. These small packets can fit easily into purses or pockets and are great for travelers, busy lifestyles, or embarrassingly lazy lifestyles if that is you. As a listener to the Rami Zaid Show, you can get 17% off your order if you go to their website. It's simply cleanseonthego.com, one word. Pick the cleanse you want, and under discount code, just type in my first name, Rami, R-O-M-Y, and you'll receive 17% off. Do it. You'll love it. Now let's get back to the Rami Zaid Show. Dave Justice, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Rami, I am pumped to be here. Good to see you, my man. Yeah, you are. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You've had incredible technology career in Silicon Valley. There's no doubt about it. But before we get to your life and your career leading up to your current company as Chief Revenue Officer of PagerDuty, a fun fact I heard about you is that you claim to have an uncanny knowledge of rock and roll history from 1970 to 2000 and that you rarely lose in jukebox trivia. Is this true? Some would say that. Yes. <laughs> And I can maybe get a little bit into the 2000s. It's kind of, but, uh, you know, rock and roll's kind of died in recent years. But um, yeah, strange fact. Well, so I decided to, to start this conversation off by putting you to the test. I have a All couple right, questions. We're going to do some okay. Q&A. So first question, who released the album Nevermind in 1991? Oh, come on. That's We're starting soft. Yeah. We're so- okay. All right. That's a softball. Nailed it. Nailed it. Right. Softball. Second one, what color was the first Weezer album featuring Undone, the sweater song? Blue. Two, two for two. Okay. You're sticking in the 90s, though. That's I, kind I, of my wheelhouse. 
that was before I had any responsibility in life. Okay, it gets it gets a little harder. It gets a little harder. Number three, Stone Temple Pilots has two brothers in the band, one guitar and one bass. Do you know what their names were? Oh God, we're going for names of of the bass player and Stone <laughs> hey, Temple Pilots. I'm, I'm just I'm just going with the. <laughs> I don't know. You got me there. Okay. That one was Robert and Dean. Robert and Dean DeLeo. They're from New Jersey. Oh, interesting. Last one. This one I, I had no clue on. The famous British rock group band, Led Zeppelin, was initially known as what? Oh, wow. It's a tough one, too. Wow. And I should know this. They're like one of my favorite bands of all time. <laughs> it's all right. Oh, uh, you got me. You got me. Okay. This one's the New Yardbirds. The New Yardbirds. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I have heard that. I gotta tell you, I'm putting you on the spot. Going jukebox trivia is actually you play songs like random Ah, songs, and you're you're sitting around with friends, and then you say name this song first, and then whoever can name it first. But trivia is good too, Rock. Well, yeah, I can't sing, so I'm not going to sing any songs there. (laughs) But I think I think you did pretty good. Good way to start the show. So, Dave, born and raised in Silicon Valley, but you went up to the University of Washington for college, correct? That's right. I actually moved up to Seattle uh, my senior year of high school, okay. which was quite a quite a change in life. Well, I got to think that you know some of the, the you know the the grunge music trivia. I mean, Seattle was Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and I, I know I'm missing a few, but that was gr- grunge band central. Yeah, it was right middle tail end. It was actually funny. One of my jobs, senior year in high school, I worked at a gas station right outside of Seattle. And the people that I worked with were all in struggling grunge bands. So when people weren't coming by looking for an oil change, or and we actually would have to go out and do full service, these guys in the back uh, with the long hair and the, the, the goatees were working on their, their stuff to play at the, the little clubs in town. It was pretty hilarious. That's great. So what, what do you play? None of them were any you good. You got to play an instrument then. I, I worked. Yeah, I play a little bit of guitar. Okay. I, I would say amateur. You know, I, I do I do enjoy it and uh, picked it up a little bit back again during the pandemic, but not as much as I would like. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's yeah. great. All right, Dave, that, that was fun. So with each and every interview I do, there's a few standard questions I always ask my guests. And the first one is, how do you start your day? I have found that some are organized, some are very disorganized, some are late, some are early, but the listeners and uh, the fan feedback has been incredible on, you know, how, in your case, an executive starts your day. So if you could let the listeners know how you start your day, I think it would be great to hear. Yeah. So I am very routined. Every morning I, I get up, I, the first thing I do is I meditate and uh, meditate for about 15, 20 minutes. And with that, Dave, um, I know I'm interrupting you there, but is your meditation complete silence? Are you listening to anything? I guess, what what does that meditation routine look like? So it sometimes it's just silence. Sometimes I, I started using an app. I started using Headspace. But actually, my little brother just took over to lead content uh, for Calm. Mm-hmm. So I had to switch, of course, because he's going to be He's going to be doing that for them globally and uh, really like that app as well. So a mix of an app or, or just doing it on my own. Sure. Okay. Okay. So you start with the meditation and then? Uh, then I, do you know the app Todoist? I don't know. No, I don't know that app. So I use Todoist to kind of manage all the things in my life because there's always a million things going on, both with work and then 
being a dad of three kids and a husband. So I will, at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, I go into Todoist and I go through the stuff that I absolutely need to get done that day. Look at my calendar. Sometimes I'll do a little, write down a little journaling on like the outcomes that I want to deliver on the day to make it a successful day. And I'll spend about 10, 15 minutes doing that just to get my head right and set some goals for the day. And then I go every day, I do something active uh, before work. So I, I do some sort of exercise. I try to do something different every day. And what is that? Uh, are you, I'm a big Peloton person, but are you Peloton? Are you outside? Are you inside? Or what's the workout lo- routine looking like? Big Peloton fan got into, uh, it's really actually kind of funny now because this was pre pandemic and, and you know, my wife, Emma. So this was probably, gosh, it's gotta be about three years ago for my birthday. One year, Emma gets me a Peloton and I like mountain biking and stuff, but I wasn't like a spin person. And I thought, ah, geez, I'm never going to use this thing. Totally got into it. And then I think it was like Christmas that year. She got this thing called the mirror mm, uh-huh. and it's like a home it's a mirror, but you can put workout studios and you can like lift weights and you can do yoga and all these cool things on it. And I thought, well, geez, I'm, I'm not going to use that either very much. What, and what, are you sending me a message? Are you, are you telling <laughs> right. me I need to like exercise more? The hands. <laughs> and you know, both of them are really cool because you can do a lot of different things. And uh, lo and behold, you know, look at the world we've been living in the last few years and gyms are closed and it's um, so I've been using those two, but I try to get outside a lot too, go for runs or walks, all that stuff. That's great. And then, uh, well, nowadays with the pandemic, I'm sure you make the commute to your your office or living room in the house. But what time of day do you start in this the meditation and everything? Usually about uh, six thirty okay. these yep. days. Non pandemic times, it's a little. It's earlier. It was like five thirty because I would have to commute. But it's strange. I mean, these days you really have to mentally lock yourself in because I go into my home office and it is like, you know, brace yourself for 10 to 12 hours of zoom meetings. Yeah. yeah. Back to yeah. back. So yeah, usually about six thirty. Good. And then fire up the old, uh, the old zoom, uh, at about yeah. nine. <laughs> it doesn't stop until about eight o'clock. I got gotcha. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks for that, Dave. So going back, I'm picturing you, you know, circa 1996, 1998 with, long hair, there's flannel everywhere and a guitar in your hand. But you started your career at Cisco Systems. And I'm wondering, you know, did you have to get a haircut before the interview or did you get the job with Cisco and then get the haircut? I guess what was it chicken and the egg kind of thing? What came first? I don't know if you have pictures or anything. So it was I definitely so it's a funny story because I thought I was going to go to law school and you know, was loving my time in Seattle and was getting ready to go to law school. And there was actually a recruiting group for Cisco on University of Washington's campus. And, you know, my dad worked there. And uh, at the time, you know, Cisco had gone through this explosive growth and was a phenomenal story. And I stopped and talked to some folks. And, you know, I thought, hey, you know what? Sales is my blood. Working with people's in my blood. My grandfather was in sales. My dad had been in sales. I was like, maybe before, maybe I'll pause law school and I will go make a run at this technology thing and move back to the Bay Area. Because at that point, it had rained 100 days in a row in Seattle. <laughs> so I was kind of ready. 
I love Seattle. It's a beautiful place, but I was kind of ready to get back home. So I'll never forget having that conversation with my dad saying, you know what, I'm going to interview for Cisco. And they've got this new college, new hire training program. And he was like, yeah, you're going to have to get a haircut. And uh, (laughs) I got a haircut, cleaned myself up. I didn't even know what a router was at the time. It was really funny. So I had to go to like technology boot camp for my 15 interviews. So it was, uh, it was a good experience. So give the listeners a little bit of uh, flavor of that that Cisco journey. Um, I think, I mean, you were there almost 18 years, I believe. Yeah. If you could tell us a little bit about that journey, because it's obviously set the stage for you for the rest of your career and life for that matter. Yeah. I mean, I look back at it. It was such a great experience. I um, learned so much, worked with so many just amazing people. But I started, they hired, I believe it was 62 people. And we all moved to North Carolina in an area called Research Triangle Park, right outside Raleigh. And the this was a pilot program. Uh, the next, they were going to bring in the next generation of the sales force and run them through hardcore technology boot camp and business training. So, but it was really like kind of like going to uh, an extension of college because all of a sudden all of us were in, you know, North Carolina. Everybody was from all over the country, and Learned a lot, had a lot of fun. I had a little place in um, an apartment in Chapel Hill. Oh, that's great. Uh, never been to Chapel Hill. And I just, I, I've always been a uh, huge hoops fan. So I just, I, unfortunately, I didn't do enough research because it extended my commute like massively, but I decided I was going to live in <laughs> Chapel Hill and I was the only one out of the 62. So everybody would come see me on the weekends. Sure. So started there, met a lot of great friends. And then once you got through all the training, you would have to pass a test and they sent you out to the field quote unquote, which means you basically got um, your own territory. And I moved back to the Bay Area and I was covering the end of the dot coms in San Francisco. So learned a lot uh, about business. Um, It was a wild time. I mean, it was the companies, it was after the dot com crash, but there was still a lot of fallout from that. If you remember some of those companies that were kind of hanging on, like a web band comes to mind. Web band was buying massive amounts of Cisco technology and, and, you know, just um, the business model clearly struggled. So did that for a while and took on a bunch of different sales roles. And then I moved to the Southwest to, well, actually Arizona, to Scottsdale and took on my first manager job and uh, led led a team down there. And um, we had a great time living in, in Scottsdale and then came back to the Bay Area and then took on a bunch of different different jobs for the company, different executive positions, ended up um, leading their, their global software team, ended up uh, the last couple of years were probably the most fun. I, I uh, led the go-to-market for the cybersecurity business. And that was, um, that was a great experience, traveling all over the world, working on really complicated problems related to cybersecurity with governments and companies and Got to work on a lot of acquisitions and integrating acquisitions. So it was a really fun time. But all in all, I look back on my time there really fondly because I got to constantly challenge myself, constantly do different things, get myself out of my, you know, the comfort zone and work with great people. You mentioned your father. And Dave, it would be remiss of me not to spend a little bit of time on your father, Rick Justice. And I had the pleasure of knowing Rick through you, of course. And I know he was a great man and I was so sad to hear when he passed away earlier this year after a 17-year battle with prostate cancer. And for the listeners that don't know, uh, Rick Justice had a 22-year career 
with Hewlett Packard before he joined Cisco Systems in 96. And I've read many, actually this is in multiple articles, many call him one of the founding fathers of Cisco Systems. And this was super special, Dave. I read a quote shortly after his passing from John Chambers, former chairman and CEO of Cisco, that said, your currency as a leader is based on track record, your relationships, and trust. When those three things come together, there almost is nothing you cannot achieve. And Rick was one of the best examples of this. So first, you know, thank you for letting me bring your father, Rick, up. But for the listeners, can you describe what your father meant to you uh, as both a father and a mentor in business? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly tough. He passed away on, on January 30th this year or so, but he had a long, I mean, he was so resilient and he handled his disease with so much grace. It was uh, over 17 years that he, he battled. But, um, you know, for anybody that's lost a parent, it's a life-changing event and it puts things in perspective. It shows you the impermanence of, of life in general. So it's been very hard, but it's been also inspirational to me, you know, aside from the waves of sadness that you get, you know, he, I feel very fortunate to have him as a dad. Cause not only, I mean, the main thing, yes, there's the business stuff, but there is the life stuff. And he taught me a lot about the important things in life, about the importance of family, about the importance of integrity, you know, doing things the right way was his you know, was his just motto in life. And there was, it's okay if you screw up, but just own it and uh, play by the rules and uh, honor your commitments to other people. And then he always treated people so well. He was just a kind hearted person. So it was interesting. I actually, I uh, was talking to my brother when we we're sitting around the house during, during the end of his life. And both of us could not remember a, a time that he said anything bad about anybody, which I think is an amazing trait. And there's certainly, you know, people out there that you could say something bad about, but he would find the good in people. And he probably held, you know, his own opinions to himself. But I learned, I learned a lot about that because we're all going through life trying to, you know, make our way and, and do the right thing. And everybody's got some good in them. So I, I try to, I mean, those are some of the things that I, take from him just as a human, you know, trying to look out for my family and friends and do, you know, play with a high level of integrity and in everything that I do and just be kind to people. And, you know, that's just a few of the things that I learned, but I, um, that was a life thing. The work thing was, it, we had a lot of talks about this over time. It was actually really strange because that I ended up, I actually ended up being at Cisco longer than, than he was because he ended up retiring you know, when he was, when he decided it was just time to focus on living life when he knew he was dealing with the disease, but we were so separate because he was, you know, I, I was down in the doldrums of frontline <laughs> sales and, right. and he was, you know, he was running the company and I got interesting. I got, I, I did, it was a unique experience because I got an interesting perspective on the world and on business at a very early age and, and leaders and how leaders should think and act and treat people. And, you know, one thing I found that we used to talk about is I met, I was able to meet some, you know, fairly prominent, successful business people with him. And he used to say, Hey, everybody puts their pants on the same way. Don't worry about it. You know, if you meet this person, they're, 
you know, they have their same challenges, just like we do. Yes, they're extraordinary in certain things, you know, that, so that was one thing I, I kind of learned from him, just kind of leaning in to those types of conversations and not being intimidated, but more curious about, you know, meeting people that have been successful and trying to to learn from them. And, you know, the other thing he taught me is, you know, people talk about this whole notion of imposter syndrome. I don't know if you, you know what that is, but it's basically a lot of people when they have a lot of success, they're not quite sure. They're always like anxious about like, how did I really get this job? Am I going to be able to, did I, you know, pull the wool over a bunch of people's eyes? And, you know, all of us go through that in life when like good things happen. It's like, hey, how's this happening? And he shared with me at the end of his career, he's like, gosh, I, I don't know how we were so fortunate and how all these great things happen. He was incredibly humble. Yeah, he was. Because I could see why that that happened to him. But he said, I figured it out very late in my career. But if you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you in areas that you need, you know, your where all your blind spots are, and you're comfortable surrounding yourself with amazing people that are smarter than you, and you just kind of get people to work together and connect the dots, you'll be wildly successful. And don't have an ego about that. It's okay if everybody in the room is smarter than you. That means you're a phenomenal leader because you're able to bring those groups together. And that was that was huge advice because you see a lot of leaders out there in the world that have to be the smartest person in the world. And it's hard to do great things with that mentality. So thanks for sharing, Dave. And and like I said, I had the the pleasure of of knowing Rick. And there was one you know, one quote, and you mentioned it earlier about the way he lived his life. And I'm a big quote geek, but John Wooden, the famous UCLA basketball coach, he has a million of them. Um, but one of them is don't let making a living prevent you from making a life. And I think that, you know, your father with work ethic, all the things that you just mentioned, he personified that. And I think he's a very special man. I'm very sorry for the loss and thank you for sharing. And it sounds like just the learning lessons, not just in in life, but work, carry with you and hopefully carry to some of the listeners listening in. Yeah. I will say that I never heard him say anything bad about anyone, but I also know he's a big Golden State Warriors fan. So there must have been something that he said bad about LeBron back in the day. <laughs> I'm kidding. You know what? He, loved, he, he just wanted to beat him. Yeah, he was exactly. actually like super, super competitive. And we were like lifelong Warrior fans. We yeah. would go to games like when Bimbo Coles was the point. Oh, guard, yeah. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, well, thanks, Dave. So, so going going back to Cisco, you were there for about eighteen years, and before your current company, though, with PagerDuty, you spent about two years at Salesforce. And I just wanted to ask, you know, that jump from Cisco to Salesforce. You've you've been there so long at Cisco at the time. Obviously, your father was there. You didn't work together per se, but. What, why the jump? And then there had to be some fears going through your head uh, of almost 20 years with the company and then jumping over to Salesforce. Would you love for you to share that with the listeners? Yeah, happy to. So, you know, you hit these inflection points in life. And one of the things is I kind of look back at life thus far is I feel like I'm most invigorated and am able to contribute most effectively when I'm out of my comfort zone. When I not like, high, like crazy anxiety, but just that healthy, not being totally in a groove. And, you know, when I left Cisco, it's obviously a hard decision because it becomes like, there's like 
it was the family. The company was changing a lot though. So it was a good inflection point. And I'd done so many different jobs where I was able to constantly, even though I was at the same company for 18 years, I did a lot of different things where I could push myself out of the comfort zone, learn new things and apply what I knew and then keep growing as a human. But I felt like I was just, it was ready to like, I'd, I'd hit my limit, new things there and knew a bunch of people at Salesforce have always admired the company. Been fortunate enough to know Mark uh, Benioff, who's who's uh, was on the board at Cisco, amazing person. And I knew knew a bunch of other uh, people at, at Salesforce. And the thing that I had always been intrigued about Salesforce is that whole notion of you know the company does really well, but they do good for society and humanity, and they do a lot to give back. And their cultural values around you know quality and just was just very intriguing to me. So an opportunity came up there and I just decided, Hey, you know, I was, had been working in multiple jobs within Cisco, helping Cisco kind of transition their business from a traditional hardware company to a cloud software company and did multiple roles where I was like right in the eye of the tornado dealing with that. And it's, it's really hard to make that business model shift. I mean, they're going to write a Harvard Business School case study on on that transformation someday. It's a very challenging thing to do on many fronts. But um, Salesforce is obviously the pioneer of SaaS, software as a service, cloud software. And so I, I had an opportunity to go you know, lead a big organization over there and decided it was time and went and did it. And uh, it was a, I had a blast. I mean, I was able to... And it was good, you know, when you look at these next steps in your career, it's, I always look, it's about the people that you work with, but, and it's about what skills can you bring to the table to contribute? And then what are you going to learn to continue to grow? And, you know, Salesforce was at an interesting point at that time, because they were starting to buy a lot of companies. And I had been doing that, like growing up through Cisco, that Cisco was very acquisitive and they were always acquiring companies. And that's a hard thing to do, to evaluate companies to buy, to integrate those companies in and continue to grow. And then they were really scaling globally. And for the last, I don't know, seven years or so at Cisco, I was traveling all over the world and doing a global role. So I felt like, hey, you know, I can learn from them. There's great people, great culture. I can help them as they grow globally, hopefully help them with, you know, some of the, as they continue the M&A pace, hopefully, uh, at least have some perspective to share. So it was, uh, that was kind of the rationale. So then this takes you to your current role with CRO at PagerDuty. And before we get to PagerDuty, because this PagerDuty story has a, a happy ending, we already mentioned the Golden State Warriors. You, your father, myself, were big Golden State Warriors fans. Yeah. It was a rough night last well, night. It was a rough one. I don't know one, when this podcast but, is going up. <laughs> it was a rough one. But November of 2013, you had the infamous Andre Iguodala diss. And we yeah. don't have camera on this podcast. I'm glad you're, so bringing, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up. <laughs> but can you tell the listeners a little bit about the diss? But there's an end-all, be-all, I think, a good story at the end for PagerDuty itself. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, actually, it's funny. Jen, my boss, currently the CEO of PagerD, we'll get to her. She does a weekly stand-up for 30 minutes for her executive staff to check in. And you talk about, you really, you get three minutes to talk about what's top of mind, 
where's your headspace at? And then she'll throw out table topics just to like in this virtual environment where we're not together. And it's funny you bring this up because she said last Thursday it was, and I want you to tell us your most embarrassing moment. And I'm sitting there <laughs> thinking, and it's like, okay, well, it, so it was probably this. I mean, a lot of embarrassing things have happened to me, but long story short, we were at a Warriors game. We had great seats at this Warriors game. And this was right before they started going to the finals and winning championships. And mind you, there's a lot of people who are bandwagon who ju just jumped on and they think just the Warriors have always won. But as I met, you know, as we both know, like most, the majority of my life, the overwhelming majority of my life, they have really struggled as a franchise and they were finally getting good. And this particular game, they had just made it like further than they had made it in the playoffs in a long time. And it looked like they were going to start getting way better. They were playing the Thunder, who had gone in, I think, the finals the year before. And we're sitting right down by the court. We're you know, very fortunate from that perspective. And our new big player, uh, Andre Iguodala, hits a game winner to beat the Thunder. And we're like, oh, we've arrived. And my little brother runs out and he hugs Clay Thompson, which is not, I don't even know if that's like legal. <laughs> like he was like, and, we're, and he gives him, a, or give him a high five or something. And then Andre Iguodala is running over and I put my hand up and he walks right by and <laughs> doesn't give me, I just, I just let me and my dad hanging. And I didn't think anybody saw it. I was like, all right, whatever. You know, it's not a big deal. This is awesome. I was still pumped. Next morning, 5 a.m., I start getting these text messages from my friends on the East Coast. And they're like, oh my gosh, uh, you know, this is hilarious. This is amazing. And I said, what, what's going on? They'd like turn on SportsCenter. And Sports Center, as you know, they have their top 10 plays, oh, yeah. but then they have the not top 10 that they'll do every <laughs> once in a while. And somehow somebody caught that and it was a picture of us whipping on high fives. So that day I have to go in to work at Cisco. I like dust myself off, go, God, that's pretty embarrassing. The president of Cisco at the time, we were hosting a very, very large customer and a CEO and the CEO staff of this customer. And we had a you know, I'm getting my head together because we had a lot to talk to them about. The president of Cisco at the time, his name is Rob Lloyd. And, you know, I'm getting my head right. And Rob kicks off the meeting by showing the video of the whipped high five in front of the CEO. Of the, it was a really big company and the staff. And they are in hysterics laughing. So they were with us that whole day. And at the end of the day, I'm going to shake everybody's hands and everybody's like whiffing high fives. And it like went... I would walk around and like buddies, like it, it just kind of carried on for a while, finally went away. But thank you for bringing it up. Oh, no problem. That's, that's yeah, what thanks. I'm here for. You know, <laughs> that's what I'm here God, for. <laughs> seven, eight years. <laughs> yeah. But I think uh, Iguodala now, he's involved with Page for Duty at some level. Well, that's ironic. Yeah, the irony yeah. there is kind of crazy because he was an early investor in Pager Duty. He now in the Miami Heat and he's done very well. He's friends. Uh, with our CEO, and he spoke at things. I haven't actually had the chance to meet him, but I can't wait someday to kind of tell him that story because I think he's very happy to be a shareholder of uh, PagerDuty from early days pre-IPO. Well, I'm thinking if if and when you get a chance to meet him, you got to go out to shake his hand and then just give pull the hand back, like just yeah, do a whip. For sure. <laughs> like I, I've been waiting eight <laughs> yeah, years exactly. to get you back. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. That's a great story. Good, though. You got to laugh at yourself. Yeah. I'm a big believer in laughing at yourself. It's easier for me to do. I'll say yeah, that. For yeah, for sure. Yeah. You've got that part dialed. Right. So page duty. I listened to um, your Kleiner Perkins podcast with uh, Jubin. And 
two things you said it was funny when you made the leap to page duty. One was with your friends in technology, in the know, so to speak, of what you were doing. It was great call, fantastic company. You're doing the right thing, Dave. And the folks that were non-technical was, what in the world is pager duty? Are they selling pagers or what? You know what's going on? And would love for you to explain a little bit about pager duty, the company, and your role now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that pretty much sums it up. There was the, the people that knew and were super excited. And then there was the people that were kind of like, well, are you really selling pagers? It's like, no, pagers are gone. So it probably, it helps, I think, the level set with the story of how the company started. Uh, the company started, the three founders worked at Amazon. And Amazon is a pioneer of many different things, as we know, in our lives. They're a, also, uh, one of the early adopters of what's called DevOps. It's a, it's a practice for how you deliver modern software. And essentially, it's you've got the engineers that actually code the software. And then you, you, in the past, have had a lot of people that actually operate it once it's up. And it's the whole notion of, hey, you code, you ship the software, and you own it after. So it was the, the engineers actually own it as like a service, right? High level is DevOps. So in their time, they were responsible for key services at Amazon. And when something would happen to one of those services, say, hey, we're having, they were having issues placing a big order on the procurement app, for example. All the engineers uh, in those days had to carry around pagers. And I remember having dinner with one of our founders, Alex Solomon, uh, when, I, when I first started. And he told me the whole story. And he said, yeah, of course, like it happens at two in the morning. Every night I'm trying to go to you know, bed, pager goes off. Everybody gets on these conference bridges and they're trying to profess their innocence. They're trying to say, well, it wasn't me because to run these services, it's really complicated technology behind the scenes. So it wasn't my database. It wasn't my network. It wasn't my cloud service. It wasn't this, that. And they said, okay, there's got to be a better way to do this. And they decided to go create a system of engagement, like a tool set for engineers. And the goal was, you know, it was, it was developed for engineers by engineers. And the goal of the technology was to take all this noise that comes into you from all these different systems that keep modern software running. Nobody really sees all that behind the scenes. But if you think about like how Netflix runs, how Uber runs, how Zoom runs, how all these companies run, it's a, a lot of complicated technology behind the scenes. And what our platform does is we ingest all these signals on how everything's working. And then we help you prioritize things, whether they're about to break or potentially they've already broken and help you pinpoint, hey, this is something you need to be focused on. And these are the people that need to fix it. And in this order, in a much more modern way. So with a mobile app, we've got modern software that you use. And we've, we've evolved over time into handling all things real time. And how we would define like real-time work is if you're a retailer and your digital shopping cart breaks, that's a big problem. That's not something you planned your day around, but if all of a sudden customers can't place orders, you need to get all hands on deck because it like we run the numbers on how expensive that is for companies. And uh, the ROI on our technology, the return on investment's amazing because we help people identify problems and fix those problems really, really fast. So engineers love it because one, they're able to distribute the responsibility a bit. 
because it's not all on them because more people have visibility to what's going on. So the product's very viral. And what we see is it expands across engineering teams and into different you know, organizations. So they love it because it reduces toil trying to figure out what is happening, what's broken, and they're able to just fix what they're uh, responsible for. And executives love it because it helps to keep, you know, key services up that make their customers happy or their employees happy. So that's how they started. That's fantastic. And then your role, Dave, and the future for PagerDuty, which everything I've read about the company seems like sky's the limit. It's really exciting. And I'll tell you, I knew of PagerDuty, but didn't know them well and was introduced to Jen through mutual friends. And the way we were introduced, you know, it was it was through Andreessen Horowitz, there, through a few people there because they funded PagerDuty and, and uh, a couple of friends said, you just got to meet Jen. She's, she's amazing. And I'd heard great things about her and she's built a great culture, great vision. And we got together and had lunch and we kind of talked about this opportunity. And it's like, well, every company has now become a software company and everybody needs to learn to operate within this DevOps world. And we're part of that toolkit and we've got a great product market fit, but we just need to build this thing to scale, to take advantage of the opportunity that's in front of us globally. Uh, And there's a lot of things that we need to do to do that. And if you look at how PagerDuty had grown up, it was the tech companies got us right out of the gate. So our biggest customers early days were you know, Netflix, Uber, Salesforce, Apple, you name any tech company, their engineering teams are, are, are using our stuff. But this pandemic has really, it's been really interesting. I saw a quote from Satya Nadella the other day, the CEO of Microsoft. And he said, we've had two years of digital transformation investments, like compressed into two months. And you know what he means by that is you had the winners, like the companies that kind of thrived. I mean, this pandemic's been awful, right? It's impacted so many people in so many terrible ways. But there's there's been some technologies that have helped people continue to you know, live their, their lives. And, you, you know, you, know you, we all know them, right? Like the, the Zooms of the world. In fact, Zoom is a, a huge customer of ours. Eric spoke at our user conference. And Eric's said, fantastic. He's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's awesome. Yep. He said they wouldn't have survived everything that was thrown at them when this pandemic hit, if they weren't using us to help keep them up and identify issues. Because if you think about how fast they had to, to grow, it was wild. And there's a lot, you know, Netflix, you know, we work very closely with them. Peloton, we work very closely with them. So there's these companies that that had to, they had already invested in, in technology and new digital operations that how to manage modern software. But what we're seeing with this pandemic is like every company now realizes that they have to become a modern software company. And I'll give you a perfect example. And this is what Jen and I we're talking about obviously i had no idea none of us had any idea that things would be kind of accelerated through the world changing like it did so that's kind of the opportunity we saw before this but an example of like how i see the world changing now is and we've got earnings t- tomorrow so you know i can't you know i won't talk, get into too much stuff but they all of a sudden we started winning a bunch of projects with regional grocery stores 
which is totally out of our core buying center. And I asked the person who runs our enterprise business in the, in North America, like, what's going on? Like you, you're selling a bunch of software to grocery stores. And he's like, it's wild, isn't it? But everybody is doing this curbside pickup and they need to run these mobile apps and they, they need us to run their, their mobile apps and keep them up and running and keep that customer experience where it is. And, and, you know, that's just one example. You look at the brick and mortar retailers, you look at, you know, financial services, all these companies. So it's really an interesting time. And I think it's a big opportunity. Yeah. Well, I mean, congrats again, Dave. I know it's been what, a little bit over a year or so. Yeah. So I started three months before this whole thing happened. So fortunately I was able to meet a bunch of people, (laughs) but I've had to hire, I think 12 executives over Zoom. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah well, which I, is really, really wild. I hope we're out of this sooner rather than later. Yeah. But uh, congrats again on, on the role and, and, and pager duty. I know nothing but success for you, as always. So I usually end my show with a few rapid fire kind of fun questions if you're Uh-oh. ready for it. Okay. No, it's good yeah. stuff. It's good. No more quizzes. There won't be any more. That's all right. I want to kind of get back yeah. and redeem myself. You can, you can <laughs> sing now. Yeah, right. Sing. No, no, I'm not singing. I, w- I won't have any more listeners. So what's one thing? So chief chief revenue officer, this is kind of a fun question. It's it's personal, not business. But what is one thing, Dave, you do not mind spending money on? Vacations, preferably vacations with family and friends. Like definitely family. I mean, we go like, but it's fun. Uh, like I don't mind because we all work so hard. I don't mind that having yep. s- spending money on experiences and memories. Love it. Good answer. Next one. Uh, I threw out a John Wooden quote earlier in the conversation. I love quotes. Is there a quote or quotes, Dave, that you know is stuck in your head right now or is always stuck in your head that you want to share with the listeners? I love quotes too. I'm a big history buff. I like reading up on, on history. And, and I think, well, definitely right now, this quote's been resonating with me, but given what we, we talked about with my dad, but I think it will stick with me. It's going to be kind of a mantra for me moving forward. And uh, it's a quote by Abraham Lincoln, who I'm a huge fan of, of him and you know his leadership style and how he, his ambition to impact the, the country in a, in a positive way and drive change. And he said, he had a quote, he said, uh, in the end, it's not the years of your life, it's the life in your years. Mm-hmm. And what I think he meant by that is like, hey, it doesn't matter how long you live, but when you're living, live life, enjoy yeah. life. That's a great one. And I think that's a great way to approach approach things because none of us know how long we're going to be here and you got to enjoy every day. Right. That's a great one, Dave. Okay, next one. I'm going to take the guitar away from you because I, I don't want you to pick, you know, rock star. But if you could choose a completely different position, not technology, and we'll say not rock and roll, what would it be and why? I think, and it wouldn't be rock and roll. I, by the way, I like all types of music. <laughs> don't, don't pigeonhole me. I listen to all sorts of stuff. Uh, You're going to get all the texts from just, your buddies now. Yeah, right? just, yeah. <laughs> I do. I, I have a diverse, eclectic music taste. But you know, I would probably say I'd love to, uh, like I just mentioned history. Like I, I love to, to read about history and how things have happened and why they've happened. So, I, I mean, I'd love to teach. I think that would be amazing to be able to kind of give back. And, and um, I mean, if, if uh, I'm loving what I'm doing, but if I like could do something, had to do something totally different, 
it'd probably be something along those lines. Great. Okay. Last one, kind of in line with your Abraham Lincoln quote, but last dinner, we don't know what's happening tomorrow. You have a last dinner right in front of you. What is on your plate or plates and what is in the glass? If you would like something in the glass or glasses, I should say. Huh. Well, it would be a lot probably. <laughs> it's my last, <laughs> yeah. last one. I, I, yeah, I, I would have to, I'd have to go with probably, I love Mexican food. Oh yeah. So I could pretty much go, I'd, I'd probably cover the whole menu <laughs> <laughs> uh, of great Mexican food. And I would have to have some really nice tequila. Oh, is there a certain bottle that you're into right now? I really love Clase Azul. Okay. Yeah. Great tequila to sipping tequila. It's not something you throw in your margaritas. Right. But uh, I really, so there'd probably be some Clase Azul. Or uh, there's a couple other uh, that I really like. So that'd, that'd probably be it. That's a, that's a great way to end it. Just Mexican food, nachos, burritos, and some tequila. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, what a way to go out. Obviously, with lots of family and friends, that would be the, yeah, main, the, main, the main thing. Yeah. I love it. Uh, well, Dave, this has, been, this has been a blast, as expected. And thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you know for the listeners you want to leave with? I mean, we talked a lot about life, work, lessons, uh, and all the above. I think if there's anything you'd like to share with, uh, with the group to sign off, please go. Yeah, no, I, I think it's always great to get some time with you, Rami, and, and congrats on all your success. I know that this, uh, this podcast is really picking up steam, so really, really happy for you. I think we covered a lot of ground in a pretty short period of time. So yeah. if uh, anybody wants to get a hold of me, I don't do a ton of social media, but I am on LinkedIn and, and leverage that for for work purposes. So whether it's, uh, we are hiring a lot of people, we are driving partnerships with uh, all sorts of tech companies. And so if anybody wants to get a hold of me, LinkedIn or, uh, or Twitter at uh, Dave JSTC. Great. Well, thanks so much, Dave, and really appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Rami. Take care. Thanks again for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dave Justice of PagerDuty. You can find Dave and PagerDuty both on LinkedIn, and you can find me at my website, RamiZaid.com. That's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks to all my loyal listeners, and I hope you all learned something interesting.